Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on February 12th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. It's Darwin Day. Charles Darwin was born on this date in 1809. So we'll talk a bit about evolution on this episode, but in a fun and unexpected way. I want to know what killed these triples. I haven't figured out what keeps them alive yet. No, we won't be talking to Kirk or McCoy, but we will chat with Muhammad Noor. He's a biologist at Duke University specializing in genetics and evolution. And he's the author of the 2018 book, Live Long and Evolve, What Star Trek Can Teach Us About Evolution, Genetics, and Life on Other Worlds. The paperback edition is coming out on February 25th. I spoke to Muhammad Noor by phone. I'm going to read a line from your book, Chapter 5, because I think a lot of people are going to go right to Chapter (laughs) 5. Probably true. So here we go. Given that interspecies mating is uncommon on Earth, it appears unusually common among the humanoid species depicted in the various Star Trek series. Indeed, attraction to members of other humanoid species does not seem noticeably weaker in any of the five series than attraction to members of one's own species. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're all human actors in various stages of makeup. Um, But this is always, always something that has intrigued me. I don't want to say bothered, although sometimes it's bothered me. I mean, people are just having sex with other species. Now, on Earth, this is really frowned upon. So let's, let's talk about that. What's going on on the various Star Trek series in terms of interspecies mating? Yeah, so it's interesting the way the Star Trek series depicted. It's it's probably no different from, say, like, they make it as though different species are no different from human ethnic groups or something like that, where, you know, oh, this person is slightly exotic and therefore attractive, and that's <laughs> that's not what you expect if you're looking at an actually different species, right? I mean, if we go to the zoo and we see a chimpanzee, we're not attracted to it any more than it is attracted to us. And that is really the correct analogy uh, versus ethnic group inter intermating or uh, intermarriage or you know because those are all human beings homo sapiens but we're talking about even further uh distantly related evolutionarily probably if we're dealing with say a klingon and a human being Oh, yeah. So it depends on exactly where Klingons or all the other species come from, how ridiculous that actually is. Right. And you get into that in in other parts of the book about explanations, legitimate scientific explanations for why these various humanoid species are similar. But but we can go back to that later. I want to talk more about the interspecies mating. Interspecies mating is not so crazy if you if you assume that uh, rather than being like human chimp being the analogy, that instead it's more like human Neanderthal. So it, it does, those two things are not independent of each other. <laughs> but go ahead. And and when I was going to college, it was assumed that there was absolutely no mating between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens that resulted in us carrying any Neanderthal DNA, and that's been shown to be completely wrong in the last decade. That's correct. That's correct. And not only that, not only Neanderthal, but also this other ancient hominid, which is no longer alive, called the Denisovan. We also, not necessarily everybody, but certainly some humans carry sometimes a fairly sizable fraction of the Denisovan genome inside them. And then you probably remember there was a study that came out which found a, a fossil that was 
exactly half Neanderthal and half Denisovan. And they figured out exactly that the mother must have been a Neanderthal and the father is Denisovan. So they were interbreeding with each other as well as with us. Which is a, a mind-blowing uh, study in that to have found that individual fossilized sample is just, astro- you know, the odds are just astronomical. Well, un- unless unless it turns out that there are a lot more of those lying around that we just haven't found yet. Exactly. Maybe there was a lot of interbreeding between Neanderthal and Denisovan, as well as among Neanderthal and humans at some point. No, that doesn't necessarily mean that there was a lot everywhere with everybody, but maybe there were some populations where that was fairly common. So let's assume that these humanoid species on Star Trek are able to, on, on all the Star Trek series and the movies, are able to interbreed to the extent that they can have either uh, most likely infertile offspring, or even you have a couple of examples where they apparently have fertile offspring. And you have a nice, you have a really nice table in the book that shows all the examples that we have from the, the various series of the offspring and who, which one was the mother, which one was the father. Um, it's really a fascinating kind of thing that they get into on the series. And, and you actually look at it probably much more deeply than any of the writers did when they were concocting this. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. Actually, that was one of the things I was most excited about when I was just starting to work on this book project, was looking to see if there was any pattern looking at the hybrids across all the species. I purposely didn't do it until near the end of the book, and near the end of when I was writing the book, because it helped me maintain my enthusiasm for the entire project. I was so excited to get to that point and see, is there a pattern? Do we see an excess of female surviving hybrid offspring? (laughs) I was very happy that the result was actually yes. Right, which which is what you would expect scientifically, but not but but is has to be just a, an accident. I, I doubt the writers. I'm sure it's just an accident. One friend of mine suggested that maybe, in in some sense, especially for the fertility, they said, well, people tend to associate fertility with female, which is kind of silly because obviously, like a fertile female with a sterile male isn't going to do anything. <laughs> but maybe for that reason, they tended to have a few more of the females than the males. But yeah, I'm sure you're right that it was just a coincidence. Now, assuming that there is a relatively close degree of genetic similarity uh, among all these humanoid species, uh, we see, I mean, the, the most obvious example on Earth is the mule. And, but we also have, you have a picture in the book of a zonkey, which is a zebra-donkey mix. These interspecies matings on Star Trek, the ones that are uh, not just recreational, uh, they could, under the right circumstances, produce offspring who themselves could then go on to have children. Exactly. So in that sense, it could be analogous to the human Neanderthal case where some Vulcan DNA gets into the human gene pool kind of thing. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting. And you're, in the book, you you spend a lot of time going back and forth between the show and the reality. So we can learn a lot about uh, hybridization and and how it's uh, not that uncommon. I mean, it's exceptionally common among plants, but it's not that uncommon among even animals. It depends on how you count common. If you count the, the fraction of species where at least one individual is known to have reproduced with at least one individual of another species, in that sense, then it's, yeah, it's very common. But on a per-individual basis, it's almost never that common. 
So it's not like, so for example, like among humans, even with say the human Neanderthal case, like we know there's some DNA that got through uh, from them into our gene pool, but it's unlikely that just, you know, humans and Neanderthal just interbred willy nilly. <laughs> there probably was a, a very small fraction that actually did that, but it would count towards, in terms of the species, it counts towards humans and Neanderthals did interbreed. Yes, check. Right. And one of the biggest barriers to breeding is the desire or lack thereof to do it. Yep. Right. I mean, as you say in the book, you walk outside and you see squirrels and birds and uh, and insects. And if you're, you know, not uh, rather deranged, you have no real interest in getting it together with a squirrel. Nor them with us. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um. I really, the book is so enjoyable, and especially if you are uh, a Star Trek fan, but even if you're not a Star Trek fan, it's a terrific introduction to some basic issues in biology. Well, thank you. That, that was my hope, honestly, with the book. I mean, what I've hoped that people understand when they see this book on the shelf is it's not an analysis of Star Trek. It's supposed to be an introduction to genetics and evolution. And it's only leveraging Star Trek just as a means for getting into the subject, not as the, the primary focus. And you actually taught a class at Duke uh, related to, not specifically to Star Trek, but uh, getting biological concepts across via science fiction. That's correct. My, my colleague Eric Spana and I had a spring break class. So this was just a one-week class over the course of spring break, but it was full time over spring break. I mean, we started at 8.30 in the morning and went till, you know, maybe six or so in the evening every day of spring break. And that was exactly it, where we, we would show an episode of Star Trek or some other science fiction or some other sort of comic type thing. And afterwards, we would use that as an entry point to discussing some topic. So we used some elements that are directly from the book. Um, Eric did some things about like Captain America and the super serum as an, as an introduction to various aspects of physiology. But it was really fun, and the students were really engaged. And what we pushed them to do was to try the same thing, you know, figure out what fandom they're most excited about, and then answer some sort of question using real science from it. And the beauty of that is, you know, if it had been just a standard introductory biology course, they would have just, you know, gone through the mechanics, and then this was the kind of thing that we wanted them to walk away from, really excited and go talk to all their friends about, like, oh, my gosh, just be super excited about getting into the science and, and sharing it with their friends and colleagues. More with Noor after this short break. Pioneering. World class. Top of their field. These are just some of the ways experts describe UPMC's Center for Liver Diseases. Our doctors know that today's liver disease treatments should be as unique as you are. We're ready to design an individualized program to help you through your treatment journey. Learn more at upmc.com slash Center for Liver Diseases. UPMC, life-changing medicine. Uh, you, you talk in the book about uh, people who have been influenced by Star Trek and other science fiction. And that's really a, a fascinating thing to think about. How many scientists and astronauts and people like that uh, were had their love of science kindled by Star Trek or science fiction in general. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was that survey, I think we cite this in the book too, there was a survey that Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society, had done specifically in that regard. And you could pull up the individual answers of everybody who responded. 
Many of them had, you know, really elegant stories about being inspired by particular characters from particular science fiction theories. There are many examples of Star Trek in particular, but there was a lot of other things as well. The importance of that can't be understated, especially now in an era where science is sometimes devalued in the public. So it's, it's nice to see the sort of engagement that can come from just an enjoyable interaction with it. I think you quote uh, one person in particular, not by name, but uh, a CDC researcher who's doing really important work who got into it because she loved Spock and, uh, and McCoy. Exactly. You want to take us on a brief tour of the book? There are six chapters. Chapter five, as we discussed, was about uh, interbreeding and, and uh, interspecies interbreeding. But the other five chapters are also great. So the, the first chapter starts off the way actually a lot of introductory biology textbooks start, which is defining life and then talking about how life works in a very basic way. Like, you know, all life that we know on Earth, which all has one origin, is water-based, carbon-based. It requires energy. It has certain temperature tolerances. So basically, I just walk through all of those things, both in the context of Star Trek and in the context of the scientific literature, answering those questions as best as I could. This involves a lot of research for that first chapter for me, because those are not areas in which I'm a specialist at all. But it was really fun getting to read, you know, these these articles, you know, published, say, like in NASA reports regarding, you know, exoplanets and the potential for life on other places and how they are looking for life and defining life in those searches. That was chapter one. Um, chapter two is something that's much closer to my knowledge base, which is essentially what is the evidence for evolution. So the first chapter, again, was defining life overall, but all life that we've seen has this single origin. So chapter two is delving into that. How do we know that life has a single origin? How do we know that all life that we know is actually related, that we share a common ancestor with grass, with bacteria, with mice, with mosquitoes? So they're going into the you know fossil record, DNA evidence, all those kinds of things. And then there was a fun part of tying it in with Star Trek with these humanoids. So you mentioned this earlier when we were talking that there are a couple of different models that come out in Star Trek to try to explain why there are so many humanoids. Uh, one of them they tossed out is actually a real idea, this idea of panspermia, where, you know, life on various worlds was seeded a long time ago and, and, and from, from space. So, you know, essentially life on Earth may have an extraterrestrial origin. Now, that could mean that actually some living form landed on Earth, or it could mean the raw materials for life came to Earth from a comet or something like that. So this is something that Star Trek tossed out and somehow concluded that despite life being seeded here on Earth four billion years ago and also being seeded on Vulcan and Kronos, which is the Klingon homeworld, all these other places, that somehow you still got basically the same product. That's just absurd. <laughs> <laughs> And really, we are literally more closely related genetically to grass than we would be to a Vulcan based on that model. You would so think, the yeah. idea that you could then interbreed with a Vulcan, like, no, that would never happen. <laughs> so that's uh, that's chapter two, the, the relationship among species and how we can take examples from Star Trek and, and see how the the evidence for common ancestry of everything that's alive on Earth is really quite strong. And chapter three is is all about DNA. Yeah, so chapter three I didn't initially plan to write, but I was trying to figure out how to move from chapter two to chapter to what would have been chapter three, which is um, the part about natural selection. And in the absence of talking about what genes are and what the hereditary material is, it didn't seem like it could make sense. 
So I thought, you know, maybe I should go ahead and insert a fair bit of genetics. And it ended up growing into a full chapter and even getting incorporated a little bit into the title as well as a result of that. But again, that was really fun to put together. And I don't know, I, I really like the figure in there about how much uh, the different series of Star Trek talked about uh, genetics and DNA. I don't know if you remember that figure from the from the book. Yes, and it's fascinating because when uh, the original series aired, you know, DNA and genetics was still pretty uh skeletal in in the information we had oh yeah we hadn't we hadn't even sequenced any dna yet like we didn't know the dna sequence of anything <laughs> and then by the time uh the current series is on i mean they're just using it constantly exactly exactly even with enterprise uh, the one that aired um, you know through about 2004 2005 and even there a quarter of the episode had dna or genetic you know mentioned in some place of that episode and you're right, in the, in the current one, yeah, the, <laughs> it's been a huge part of it. They even introduced this concept of horizontal gene transfer. It's like, wow, that's next level. <laughs> that's pretty <Yeah>. good. <laughs> and Chapter 5 we talked about already, and then in Chapter 6 uh, you you talk about the science versus science fiction and the, the importance of getting these concepts across. Yeah, and the importance of basic science, the importance of just discovery-based science, not just trying to find the gene that when disrupted causes cancer. I mean, the, the, the benefits of that is obvious, but sometimes it's useful just to try to figure out stuff we don't know because the advantage might be tremendous <laughs> from that sort of research. And I give a couple of examples of that. Yeah, why don't you t talk about the thermophile example because it's so striking. Yeah, absolutely. So this was, this was a group of people, I think, in the 1960s. They were just looking at what microbes could live in these, you know, hot thermal vents. And they were just characterizing species that were in there, and they were just interested in, like, what could survive in there. Oh, look, we found some microbes that could survive in there. And this particular one, Thermos aquaticus, oh, my gosh. I mean, that that species has revolutionized all of molecular biology. The reason for it is um, the way we amplify DNA before we do anything with it. It requires an enzyme called a polymerase. But the problem is polymerase is like we use a human polymerase. It breaks down at high temperature. The polymerase that you can get from this microbe works at super high temperatures because that's where it lives. So by getting this polymerase from there, we actually, all molecular biology that we use now is based on using either that particular enzyme or some variant thereof. So all DNA sequencing that we're doing now with the modern approaches, all the DNA fingerprints we use, anything for forensics, anything for personal genotypes, all that has used that particular enzyme. Well, I guess most recently now we have some other approaches that don't use it, but for the last 20 years, that dominated all of molecular biology. And we would never have found it if this person wasn't just curious about what's living in these hot thermal vents. And then you have a, a little appendix to the book where you talk about some of the stuff that Star Trek series kind of got really wrong. And sometimes, you, but you, you're really kind to them. You you give them A for effort sometimes. Even, even... <laughs> That's right. I definitely gave A's for effort. That one was, um, that appendix was something I didn't plan ahead of time, but it was interesting biology bits that came, but they didn't fit the narrative. So again, the book, the aim of the book is to be sort of an introduction to genetics and evolution. Just for having these random topics wouldn't have fit in there. So that's why I thought, you know, I'll put those all in an appendix. And that's a place where you can just get some random additions in there. So things like, the, for example, the horizontal gene transfer aspect of the tardigrade, that was there in the, in the appendix as well. But yeah, I did try to give I did try to give them a lot of uh, kudos just for effort. <laughs> I tell you, if I had ten years, what I would love to do is watch all the episodes that are cited because I haven't I've I haven't seen like the last three series very uh, closely. I'd love to watch all those episodes and then 
read everything that you have in the footnotes or where you have the citations because one of the fascinating things I found reading the book was going through the citations just to see the titles of the various articles that you cite. And you were citing really recent research for a lot of the stuff. And, and a, most of the citations are within the last 10 years. But you, the, your citation range, as far as I could see, went from 1735 to 2017. 1735 being Linnaeus and 2017 being a lot of the most recent findings that uh, had implications for some of the stuff you wrote about. And I, I just love that. I think anybody interested in biology in general, get the book. Don't even read the book. Just read the footnotes and the citations. No, read the whole book. What the hell? You, you paid for it. But and, and get a lot of those papers that are in this. I was sitting here thinking, did you actually go through all that? I mean, it's an enormous amount of work to have put this together. And did you watch every episode of Star Trek? So that's a great question. So I'd given presentations before, and people would call me out if there was something I missed. So what I did is I, I downloaded the scripts for every episode. And what I would do is basically I'd, I'd, every night I would look at two scripts and then watch one episode for about a, a year. <laughs> I just want to talk about one specific thing, um, the, the, because everybody loves the tribbles. And you have um, the first scientific explanation that I've seen for why it would be advantageous for them to have so many offspring. Uh, you know, because you'd think that anything that reproduced that fast might eat itself out of uh, its survival. But you had a good explanation in there for why they would need to reproduce so incredibly uh, bountifully. Yeah. Yeah, especially since they're bisexual, reproducing essentially with themselves. They're essentially uh, hermaphrodites and reproducing, you know, in utero because they are born pregnant, as was said in the episode. You know, there's no way to get rid of bad mutations. So you just have to produce a lot of offspring and hope that some of them will be healthy. <laughs> you want to hear a triple? I got one right here. Felt the soul of the globe surrounding me. Everything right is all you'll ever need. All you'll ever need. Was in a race to an imaginary finish line. Got to the end and I didn't find Mahabha Nora will be speaking on Star Trek The Cruise 4, a week-long trip leaving from Miami March 1st. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you'll also find a bunch of articles in our archives on the science of Star Trek. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. The music playing us out on this episode is an original composition and performance by a young singer I saw at a little Scientific American party just last night. Her name is Melly Soul, spelled S-U-L. And her song is called Pride. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yeah.